Welcome back, Intimates. Thanks for your support on Patreon, making this 2021 season possible. This podcast is about all things intimate, relationships, love, connection, community, consensual non-monogamy, kink, orgies, lovers, and of course, good old-fashioned sex. I talk with old friends and even meet some new ones. I interview people from all walks of life, from recovered addicts to counselors, sex partners to perfect strangers. I'd like to thank my hosts, the Musqueam First Nation, as this podcast is recorded on their unceded ancestral territory, where I was born, where I work, and where I currently live and play. So settle in for an intimate conversation. William chats today about sleepwalking through life. We discuss his separation from his wife, the need of purpose or meaning in life, confronting fear, how we spend the time of our lives, mindfulness and PTSD, content warning for near-death experiences, and if relevant to you, the <laughs> content warning for two assigned male of earth people talking about toxic masculinity. Welcome, William, to another session of Intimate Interactions, seeing as we've already recorded a couple. Good to be here. Absolutely. Awesome. So we talked quite a lot, actually, in our last couple of sessions about everything from you having in your death experience to coming to some new conclusions about alcohol or gaming or depression, um, medication. We talked about parents and getting sort of like, quote unquote, good with that relationship to the best of one's ability, um, as well as like reframing narratives and what CBT sometimes calls mistaken beliefs. Um, and we talked a little bit about the role of family in like coping and I'm super curious to talk more about what all of that has sort of amounted to for you in terms of what you described as sleepwalking through life. Yeah, it's, um, it's been really an amazing journey and utterly by coincidence. And now as I'm building narrative, I can say that whoever directed that had really good timing but my wife and I were going for a walk in the park a few months ago and we both knew that our marriage was in crisis in one shape or another but we didn't know and I remember kind of talking back over my shoulder and saying you know we're gonna look back at this point in our life and whether things work out between you and I whether we stay together or we separate whatever else happens we're going to look back at this point and say we're glad that we had that that things this moment things are going to change for the better one way or the other whether we separate or stay mm -hmm. together we're going to be glad for this moment because we're both going to grow a lot from this and um and then i went and pickle flipped off my bicycle and almost died um <laughs> my wife moved out of the house I gave up a lot of my coping strategies. Uh, as far as sleepwalking through life, it really, it really does astound me how quickly it can happen. And the thing that amazes me the most is like, I did not have a language for what was happening to me until I snapped out of it. I did not, I didn't, it's like telling a fish that they're in water. Mm -hmm. You know, the fish, the fish doesn't think much of it. The fish is just fishing, is you know, doing his <laughs> sure. business. Being a fish. Yeah, exactly. And then you say to the fish that they're in water and their mind gets blown. They don't even know what you mean by water, right? right? And it's like a lot of my life I'd been sleepwalking through this experience of 
a lot of carrying a lot of emotional baggage from a long time ago, a lot of old emotional narratives that I carried around as these heavy, heavy things and not having words for it and not knowing it, like being completely unaware of how much pain I was in. But at least for how I was doing it specifically was what would be characterized now as be well, now. It's not in the DSM five, but <laughs> behavioral addiction. Sure. So, you know, I don't want yeah, I don't want to get too much into the politics of addictive behavior versus chemical dependence. Sure. But I think that I think that popular discourse is often a little bit weak on discussing like Addiction isn't what you do. It's the reason you're doing it. I couldn't agree more. So, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. The emotional motivation for, I mean, I was talking to someone on the phone today who's compulsively, compulsively cleaning. And they said that they ran out of things to clean. So they were tearing their house apart, trying to find something to purge. So they would run up to the bathroom and open the cupboards and be like, what can I throw out? What can I get rid of? What can I do to simplify my life? And it's like, that is a compulsion. That isn't it. Like, yeah. I mean, whether or not it's a chemical dependency, that's a behavioral dependency to deliver something that you emotionally need. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, it was video gaming mm -hmm. because it, it brought down my stress. It brought down my anxiety. Mm -hmm. It, it gave me – it quieted down a lot of my frustrated feelings that I was just a tiny, insignificant cog in an enormous, incomprehensible machine. And video games just took my mind away from wandering through that. Mm -hmm. But the more I think about what video games, what they were doing in my life, I think of it more as like this powerful visual image of like – like a desert atrium with rocks. And under those rocks, you'll find people like video gamers or compulsive cleaners <laughs> hiding from the light. Sure. And so, you know, you take away video games and pow, all the, all the animals scurry to the other rocks and they hide. And I'm trying to scurry. use, I'm trying to use that metaphor to appreciate that I'm not trying to just scurry to the next thing and it, it's happened too. Like I, I gave up video games and I was really struggling with the anxiety that came up. Like I had an, an enormous backlog of anxiety from things that I had not been coping with for a very long time because I just used video games to just shut my head up. And um, I had to start confronting the anxiety and started to find strategies that were effective. And I've been really lucky lucky i've been very fortunate that i've found strategies that have effectively helped me with the anxiety but i still get left with um the existential void uh, is what i've been struggling with and what i've been hiding from is when i say existential void i mean um like in the book man's search for meaning it's this idea from logotherapy or what was it oh I think it was called logotherapy, which is the idea that a lot of humans struggle almost entirely because they lack meaning and purpose in their life. Mm -hmm. And you can extrapolate huge amounts of psychological problems just being to people's lack of meaning. Sure. And um, 
I've been finding myself, you know, daylighting that a lot as far as like pull up the rock and I scurried <laughs> out. <laughs> Sorry, when you say daylighting, just for folks listening, you mean like exposing something once hidden to the daylight? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, daylighting comes from a term where in the process of urbanization, they bury creeks and streams and they become dead things, but they still exist. And then daylighting is a process where they'll get, you know, you'll see it happen a lot in parks and things. They'll open a stream back up to the sunlight and then you've got birds and plants and it grows. So it's a beautiful metaphor for the thing was there the whole time, but shining some light on it can make it a lot healthier and not necessarily such a problem. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, you'd mentioned going from, oh shoot. Yeah. I stopped taking notes a while back when you were still talking about marriage in crisis. <laughs> so I'm like, right. You were talking about marriage in crisis and then you were talking about your accident near death experience. And then you were talking about, all human suffering or not all human suffering, but a large right. amount of human suffering deriving from a lack of purpose or meaning. Yeah. Uh, the idea of the idea of sleepwalking is that, uh, I mean, this is not my idea. It's, it's absolutely like, um, from you're seeing it more now in modern psychology is the quality of our understanding of the interaction of the brain becomes better this is my interpretation of the history of psychology, but around the time of Sigmund Freud, you had sort of the pinnacle of enlightenment thinking, which is like human thought is defined by words. Mm -hmm. Your language of words is like the ultimate gift. Like, you know, God touched your forehead and gave you language and anything that isn't you constructing language is useless. Right? So Freud's, I, this is my interpretation, sure. But that that pinnacle that pinnacle of enlightenment thinking led us to cast out the baby with the bathwater. As far as things like Stoicism and Buddhism, is that we threw away a lot of really meaningful insights. That actually, you know, just because we didn't understand the mechanism, we threw out the philosophies that gave us much better outcomes in terms of like understanding. How we think, how our emotions are integrated. I think that there's some really good books recently that I've read about it. Like uh, The Body Keeps the Score is an amazing book. Highly recommend that. Uh, another book that I read recently is called Radical Acceptance. I could get a name for that. Um, yeah, I, there's, there's is, one called um, What the Body Remembers. Uh, the Body Keeps the Score is... I, they could be a lot of overlap. I'm not especially well read in this field, but it it seems to me that we're at a point where sort of modern 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 scientific psychology is finally starting to bring into the fold philosophical understanding from thousands of years ago, and this idea of being like awoke or awakened. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what Buddha that's what his name means it's just the awakened one oh right? i didn't know that and it that's my understanding uh these are all very much a lay person's yeah, reading it's totally fine <laughs> you're so, probably right yeah um here yeah, i'll, I'll google it yeah it literally means the enlightened one 
Well, thank you. Thank you. My understanding of how this all ties in is that in our life, we will run away into these worlds of comfort that we construct around ourselves. And oftentimes, they're very, they very much fill a short-term emotional need. Mm -hmm. But on the sort of outside of that little world of our construction, the real world is building. The real world is happening. And the real world is eventually going to, whatever metaphor you want to use, but like, flood over the retaining wall of your little envisionment of the world, sure. right? Uh, I didn't plan my metaphors ahead. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, but the idea that, you know, we run from comfort to comfort in the things that we do, like I've spoken to a friend of mine who's a yoga instructor who talked about how she used to be a shopping addict. She was addicted to online shopping and had to like come to terms with the fact that like that was filling a deep like emotional hole inside of her i have a good anecdote about this and it was oh please do so go uh, ahead it'll give me a compose your thoughts sure 100 percent <laughs> um so speaking of addiction to online shopping there's like oh i can shop for things online now and it's really convenient um which is something i've been doing for getting um accessibility aids for my aging mother things like jar openers and elastic shoelaces and you know extended shoehorns which i haven't gotten yet but i'm thinking about it it's sort of a question of like what can i do to improve her quality of life and finding like not not as a person who has been physically able-bodied um as long as we're not talking about like chronic pain or ibs stuff yeah in terms of mobility i've i have complete motion and like that's a that's a huge awesome thing that i get to enjoy and not think about very often and not think about the way that the world is constructed around people who are mobile the way that i'm mobile but um when it comes to trying to find mobility aids it's sort of like okay well where would i even go to get that so for me online shopping was like oh it's this really awesome tool that i can use to find these items where i wouldn't even know where to look for them but then the flip side of that mm -hmm. is this anecdote i'm going to tell you which is i was i like looking up cute things because I like buying things that make me happy and cute things make me happy. So I'll, you know, buy everything from like really adorable stickers all the way through to like hilarious shirts or rather shirts I find hilarious that other people may not. Um, and uh, I literally I got busted by my partner who found me in an Amazon search for just the word cute. And she literally said, OK, like if you're looking for like cute backpack, that's one thing. But if you're just searching for cute, that's a cry for help. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's a fair point, fair point. Yeah, yeah. Just, just doing it for the sake of doing it, for that little emotional hit, yeah, right? exactly. And I mean, yeah, I, I try not, like, I'm trying not to be, I'm trying not to be overzealous in my kind of conquest of comfort. But I think it's just a matter of, I mean, it's like I was saying, you know, about addiction or about whatever else, I think that the reason you're doing it is a lot more important. Mm -hmm. So it's like, are you doing it because you can't face reality or because you just need a break from reality? Those can be two different things. 100%. But, uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. And also, I think for me, part of the difficulty in coming to face reality, um, if I can call it that, which I think I can, 
was feeling like, well, if I let myself be uncomfortable, I'm going to be uncomfortable for like the rest of time. Like it, it felt unbearable to, you know, that, that whole notion of being without my distractions, without my coping mechanisms, without gaming, without something to keep me focused on the next badge without that hit of dopamine to say, you know, you're productive. Don't worry. You're working towards something. You're achieving something. You know, even if that something was literally a badge of pixels that didn't really mean anything. Being Mm -hmm. without Mm -hmm. that left me in such an uncomfortable space that it felt like I would never be free from that discomfort. And I think knowing that just spending two minutes breathing and reminding my body it's safe where I am and that it's okay to be uncomfortable. Just spending two minutes between distractions would have hugely, I think made a difference for me. Absolutely. There's, there's like, I, I cannot overstate in my experience, at least how much mindfulness you just described, how much like mindfulness, Mm -hmm. taking a pause, letting yourself breathe and like, like you say, like um, thinking that your discomfort will be permanent, like your suffering will be endless. I mean, it's amazing how much power it's amazing how much power this boogeyman gets. Like the more you avoid these things that you don't want to confront, they become this enormous paralyzing fear. And um, I've, I've one of the things that I woke up with in the hospital that I, really internalized was the idea that a lot of life you get you get a similar metaphor to this handout that i had where the handout said ptsd is caused by malformed memories basically it's like you don't process memories correctly you create the wrong emotional quote unquote wrong emotional association mm-hmm. But it's weird because you your brain files them away in such a way that they recreate that emotional difficulty rather than having a reflective experience of your memory where you can look at it in the past mm-hmm. and process it. Rather than looking at it as an event in the past, it creates the emotional presence again of, you know, like a horrifying trauma. Uh, trauma. Mm-hmm. It will re-engage you with that severe emotional experience. Mm-hmm. And I've I've taken that I've taken that principle and I tried to apply it to more of my life where I'm trying very hard to confront the things that I have been avoiding. Like if I am afraid of being alone, that's a that is exactly the right reason to go be alone. If I'm afraid of being like laughed at or ridiculed, that's exactly the right reason to expose myself to like the thing that I'm afraid of being ridiculed for or like, um, you know, any number of things as far as coming out of the hospital, realizing the nature of my injury, realizing the nature of my dependency to my uh, now separated spouse, having to be home alone and confront all the emotional difficulties Mm -hmm. as far as like all the, all these things that I was afraid of and, and time and time again, you spend a bit of time with the discomfort. You spend a bit of time using the strategies that you learn, like mindfulness, mindful breathing. And then you realize, like, I was, you know, in some cases, it's like I've been running away from this fear for decades. Mm-hmm. And I cannot believe how trivial it was. 
Like, <sighs> yeah, <laughs> I feel that. Yeah. 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 I remember Dave Chappelle told that story about bombing in one of his acts where he, you know, he got up in front of an audience and he, he tells a whole good story about it. But that's one of the things he says is that he just like catastrophically bombed a show. Mm -hmm. And then he realized like, this is not that bad. Like you can, you know, nothing actually can hurt you from a memory, but it's, I, you know, that being said, of course, PTSD is its own beast. I don't want to act too generalizing sure. about these things, but I'm talking, I'm talking more about things that make you anxious or nervous or a bit fearful or a bit embarrassed. Mm -hmm. It's like you really can just march into those kind of half cocked and figure it out. And you'd be surprised how good you are at coping with these things. Sure. And your mileage may so, vary. Obviously this is a, a person to person thing. Yes. And if it's really severe memories, please do so with a counselor or therapist. <laughs> exactly. Um, there's a member of my family who did have that experience there. They were in therapy and the count, the therapist did not know that they had PTSD and marched them unprepared right into a traumatic experience in their memory and now that member of my family will not go back to a therapist he thinks that they're evil wow it's uh basically yeah it was it was a re-traumatizing experience so you know that's my caveat yeah, that's pretty brutal um yeah yeah yeah, specialized therapists. I, therapists I guess, specialize in different things. It's important to find one that's not only a good personality match for you, but that also has the relevant skill sets. Absolutely. I think that one of the things that I'm very grateful for is that I think, I think our generation, like we're all very touchy-feely. We're all very like exploring our emotions and talking a lot about it. But I honestly think that we're just doing a lot of the heavy lifting that we should have had done in childhood. And it'll be our legacy to pass on to the next generation of saying, you're going to learn at three what I learned at 42. Yeah. Like, it's, it's I, hope very so. much... I hope you're right. I hope we are imparting that knowledge so young. I really do think so, because I, I think about the educational model that I grew up in, and I think about the world that I grew up immersed in uh, between education, family, and public television. There really wasn't a lot there to properly learn how to do these things in a good there way. There was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So, That's about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The lone, the lone beacon of light, eh? <laughs> Yeah, Mr. Rogers was pretty exceptional in his ability to identify kids having feelings and, like, normalize that. It was the closest thing to a nurturance yeah. model of masculinity that I had growing up. Yeah, yeah. There was, um, in, uh, oh, sorry, I'm just kind of losing the plot here That's again. okay, I, my um, dad literally went to Mr. Rogers' neighborhood theme. <laughs> and like the way his eyes got really Perfect. big when he said he would have more ideas for you he was like mind blown himself it's pretty good Sweet. well but he also said you know you'll have um, things you'll want to talk about and i will too which is like in so many ways the bedrock of a relationship like whether it's like romantic or just a friend like you're you're going to talk about things you want to talk about not necessarily you know, because you're passionate about them, but because you might feel a need to, or just a desire to like unload something that's really emotionally impactful. Fair enough. I never watched 
Mr. Rogers that much, but I'm <laughs> <laughs> I want to see this for myself now. I feel like that would have been a good like that would have been a good uh, starting point for me on my most recent spiritual Mr. journey. Mr. Rogers neighborhood. I appreciate that. Just just pipe it in the uh, intensive care in the <laughs> hospital. Just, just just put it on a loop. You'll catch something that you need to see and see something you need to learn. <laughs> yeah, it's sometimes I see the stuff that kids are being taught these days and I'm just like you know, like they'll be like, didn't that make sense, kids? And I'll be like head desking, just banging my head gently on the desk. Like, why am I learning this three decades later than I needed to learn this? It's it is unbelievable. I mean, even in even in my own experience, I know as a child, I probably would have gotten diagnosed ADHD but instead, it was just like, oh, he's just like a bad child. Right. You know, <laughs> like, we can explain this by the fact that clearly he's not being shamed enough, maybe not getting hit enough at home. Right. I was in that I was in that brief historical moment where parents could still hit you, but teachers just recently were, had to stop. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, I was I was a little after you because I'm what, like six years younger you're about my brother's yeah, age, yeah, actually, yeah. because my you're you're probably mm -hmm. like six months older than my brother. But uh, mm. yeah, it's it's nuts. Yeah. I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was young, and they gave me Ritalin, which was probably not dosed for my body weight correctly. But wow, yeah. did that yeah. work? Being on Ritalin, it was like I was so <laughs> focused. Kids would say horrific things to me, very hurtful things, racist things. And I would just like shrug it off in school. I'd just be like, I, what? I can't be distracted with you and just go back to doing my work. And like my ability to stay focused on what I wanted to stay focused on was just like ridiculous. I was like, is this what, is this what like being neurotypical is like where people can just choose to focus on what they want to focus on? I'm like, that's not fair. Uh, but then the downside is I would get home and like right around, I don't know, 4 p.m. Because they would dose me at lunch at school and my parents would dose me in the morning and then I would get home and when I came down off the medication, it was like Zoidberg. Oh, my God, I'm coming down. Um, and like yeah, full yeah. on tears and just like feeling emotionally thrashed for about two solid hours. Like clockwork, inconsolable crying. Yeah, Yikes. my parents were more disturbed by it than I was. Yeah, I was like, enough. I was you like crying. Just... I was like, yeah, I just feel terrible right now. And this is. Not that different from the rest of my childhood, except it's all out. So <laughs> it's not necessarily like, it's not like these feelings are new to me. I just like would cry inconsolably for two hours every day and then dust myself off once I was done coming down off the medication. And I was okay, I suppose, trying to make sense of the world, trying to piece all back together what had happened. Um, but like there were times my parents would try and promise me McDonald's or like this thing or that thing. They would try to get me to stop crying. Like they, they oh. had no idea what they were doing. They didn't understand what withdrawal yeah. was. They like, they didn't know what support I needed. And to their credit, they still tried to engage with me, which was looking back. I'm like, I know they were doing it for their own peace of mind to some extent, but also they obviously cared about me at least somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> try and give them a little so. credit. <laughs> Yeah, not, not. It, it's hard sometimes, but knowing. I am trying to give them credit. Yeah, yeah. I was actually pretty upset about it when they first put me on the medication. I didn't like it. But looking back, I'm like, I'm so happy I had that experience because I learned what, you know, having the wrong dosage is like, what not being on a consistent 
you know, medication is like. And like, I just, I learned so much about my experience of pharmaceuticals that now looking back, I'm like, that was like, that's a treasure trove of knowledge about my brain and my body and like how I function and like what certain experiences are like that at the time I didn't appreciate, but that I totally appreciate now. So, yeah, when, um, so you would have a period of a couple hours where you would just decompress right. bawling and it, and then be like, okay, like I'm, I'm okay yeah. now. Yeah. Like, like it was pretty much like chemically just like my brain was a little fucked from being on Ritalin all day. And, uh, it was like recalibrating to not having this stimulant. So naturally yeah. I functioned as if my brain were under the effects of a depressant. It's like. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, just need a little reset. Yeah, it just sucks to <laughs> it sucks to go through a mini withdrawal every day. That's kind of sucky. Yeah. Um, how many? How many? How many years did that carry? Only on one. For? My parents couldn't take it. <laughs> so after like after oh. grade three, they basically like <laughs> abandoned it. They were like, we couldn't we couldn't put you on it again in grade four. Like we couldn't deal with it. Yeah. Not in good. Yeah, they didn't feel like it was doing any favors, <laughs> but all the medical professionals encouraged them to stay the course, so they stayed the course. And then at the end of one year, they were like, "Nope, never doing that again." And I was like, "Yeah, okay, well, I can do it as an adult." Wow. <laughs> so now I'm looking yeah. into ADHD yeah. medication. But you were talking about being um, branded like a bad kid and the way that shame functions and the way you know, like you should take this kid home and beat him more because that's going to make things better. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I just got drugs, so I got the other side of that, other side of that treatment. My uh, <laughs> my parents already hit me, and they were like, "Well, we're... yeah, that yeah, it's work. like it's like Ned Flanders' yeah. parents. You gotta help us, Doc. We tried <laughs> nothing, and we're all out of ideas. Except, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they obviously didn't try yeah. nothing. Like to, again, to tr for me to do the outlandish thing of trying to extend some credit to my parents, <laughs> I should probably be a little like mm -hmm. courteous and just say they they did legitimately try. They just were horrifically under resourced yeah. to do that. Yeah, yeah, they 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 did their best. <laughs> you know, you kind of say that with with a careful kind of shrug. Did like, you ever watch Red Dwarf? Best is a weird. No, oh, go I ahead. Yeah, I, I've, I'm familiar with the character. Okay, there's the um, um, there's the episode called The Inquisitor where this simulant comes back from the future and is judging every person in existence. Are you familiar with this? I have. I think a lot about that episode. <laughs> actually, the best is um, the intro of the episode. He, he comes yeah, in ahead. and he's like, he says the name of this guy that he teleports in on, and he's like, "You have you have been a completely like worthless version of yourself. Like you really haven't made the best of your time in life. What have you got to say for yourself?" And all he has to say is, "Is that you, mother?" Um, it's just that reaction just like <laughs> gets me every time. But uh, no, I was I was going yeah. to um, one of the characters, Rimmer, for those who aren't familiar with the show, is essentially just this. Um, he is he is an antagonist of the main character who's like an acquaintance that kind of has to be there, but nobody particularly likes him. Um, and he's not a particularly laudable character, but when being judged, everyone's judged by themselves. Um, it's, it's the whole, um, from where I started, nothing is up. He has this line that actually gets him past the test. He passes the judgment because he has extremely low standards for himself that he believes he started in such dire circumstances that from where he started, sure, he's a nothing, but nothing is up. And I'm like, that's such a like, like dark thing to say, but also like, there's some truth to that. Like, you know, if my parents were starting in abject poverty in at least one case, um, you know, starting in 
really disadvantaged conditions where like you know like my my mom literally had two younger siblings die of malnutrition um like they they came from abject poverty um to go from there to you know being in this complicated and somewhat really unhealthy dynamic with my you know white dad and and i'm not saying unhealthy that it's exclusively on his side or anything it was just a toxic really crappy dynamic i'm not trying to referee that in any way but to go from that to living in canada with access to health care with access to shelter and food she technically like owns a very small place um like that's insanity like to me like that that notion of someone going from this like like that that lift is pretty incredible to me so it's like you said right it's the whole we see as far as we do because we stand on the shoulders of giants that whole notion that you know like our forebears may have screwed up by today's standards but they did their best with yesterday's standards and by today's standards those just look like garbage that's lit on fire and maybe that's a good Mm -hmm. thing like maybe it's a good thing we improve that much each generation there's something to be said for you know in in the in the difficult process of reconciling where we're from and those fraught relationships it is worth like you say putting a bit of historical context behind it Mm -hmm. and it does give you a sense of a sense of scale and a sense of appreciation yeah it's like they say every war is fought with the last war's tactics right? <laughs> well thank you for a third session here on intimate interactions of course my pleasure absolutely so how did you like it intimates Discuss your ideas with the community at facebook.com forward slash intimate victor or tweet me at intimate victor or follow my Instagram, you guessed it, at intimate victor. If you can spare the cost of coffee to help the show keep going, head to patreon.com slash victor salmon. We hugely appreciate your help to continue making intimate conversations for you and yours. If not, you can always help other intimacy nerds find the podcast by leaving us a review anywhere online, especially iTunes, or you can just tell a friend. The opening music is on hold for you, made of algorithmically generated notes and chords, and played by an AI-rendered saxophonist. The closing music is Gymnopédie, number one, by Eric Satie. Both are provided royalty-free, courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Thanks so much for your time, and may your most important relationships be filled with the intimate, rich interactions you crave. Be well. <laughs>